0: 20 world leaders meet in St. Petersburg as tensions rise over Syria. There's increased military activity in the Mediterranean, but what does it mean for Cyprus?
1: The government has made it clear what the role of the armed forces will be, but I am obviously aware that there will be speculation.
0: And we hear about the young Winston Churchill's early battle experience in Afghanistan. I'm Claire Sadler, standing in for Kate Chabot. World leaders have gathered in St. Petersburg for the annual G20 summit. Officially, Syria is not on the agenda, but leaders will be discussing it on the sidelines. President Obama is meeting his French counterpart, but won't be meeting David Cameron. I'm joined by the Daily Telegraph's defence editor, Con Cochlin, and BFBS defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Con, first of all, welcome to SITREP.
2: A pleasure to be with you.
0: <laughs> Good to have you. We're on a, a week on now from the Commons vote in Syria, which really has left the British Prime Minister rather on the sidelines today in St. Petersburg. Do you think that's the case?
2: I think it is. It's, um, I think Mr. Cameron in St. Petersburg is paying the price, really, for last week's vote. Um, in in Prime Minister's questions yesterday in the Commons, he reiterated that, Whatever happens now, Britain won't be taking part in any military action against Syria. So as Syria is the main issue at the G20 summit, um, he's rather left on the sidelines. Uh, President Obama's cancelled his bilateral talks with the prime minister to meet the French president, which must hurt Mr. Cameron a great deal. Um, And Mr., uh, Mr. Putin and Mr. Obama are also focusing on this issue so uh, you really wonder what mr cameron's doing in the first place
0: yes christopher lee as uh, as con said there obama's going to be talking to Hollande, but
3: not to cameron do you think that matters it doesn't at the moment doesn't matter at all and the reason for this is i mean he obama especially what people are saying you know the special relationship. well you know that's forget it now after the commons vote not so um when they need each other then that's when it does matter. At the moment, they do not need each other. The other part of this is that uh, that Prime Minister Cameron has made it very, very clear uh, Britain's not going to fire any missiles in this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But he is still providing intelligence. That hasn't broken down. The, the, the two-way street intelligence between CIA, NSA in Washington and the other 14 agencies probably, and then with uh, GCHQ in the United Kingdom, with MI6, with the contacts with the oil companies where you get the best intelligence from, and also from is- Israel, that sticks. He doesn't need to talk to him at the moment. He does need to talk to Hollande, because Hollande wants it, and he is going around saying we're the best people in Europe at the moment, and we are your true friends. And Hollande, oh, crikey, he needs, he, needs, he needs a result here. And Obama will give it to him just from, the, just from the photo call.
0: Obama's going to be talking to Hollande. Who else is going to be talking behind the scenes, do you
3: know? Well, if you've got... When, I mean, when you look, for example, the Germans. Germans are there. They're saying, we're not going to get involved militarily. Um, the other people that are, are important are the ones that would actually support America probably in the uh, probably in the region, so they can actually sort of give their voices, but most importantly really is in the United Nations, in the Security Council, and it's a shifting Security Council apart from the, the, uh, apart from the permanent members of it. And so these are the people that he's going to talk to. But he ain't going to brief them. He's not going to say, right, here's the intelligence picture, and this is the, these are the targets we're going to go for. I actually don't believe the American president knows which targets they're going to go for yet. This is, he's got ages before Congress is going to put this together Mm. you know the senate's got to put it together yet the house doesn't actually meet again until next week any targets that he might have had when he said uh, originally you know that the line has been crossed they've probably been shifted i mean if you were going to stockpile uh, a chemical warfare target what would you do you probably stick it in a playground and and make truancy a capital offense america's got a problem just in their targeting process
0: uh, Con uh, Christopher, there was was uh, saying about the US. What can the what can the US achieve? It goes to the full Senate vote next week. Do we think it's going to get through?
2: Well, I'd like actually to take issue with Chris uh, over, over this issue of it not really mattering that we're not taking part. I think it does actually. I think the reason that we had the vote last week and we were rushed into getting the vote, uh, having the vote rather, was that Obama wanted some allies on his side to give him the diplomatic cover for this action. Uh, and we are what what the Americans like about the British is we always deliver. I mean, the French say they're going to do something, but what they actually do is another matter. So um, we'll have to see how that works out. But the but the you know, look, looking forward to, you know, what's to what might come out of G20, I mean, I personally think it's really important that uh, Barack Obama gets out of this great sulk he's got with uh, President Putin and the two of them actually get together because the, the, one, the one thing, the one dynamic that is holding up an international response in Syria is uh, the, the Russians and if, if Barack Obama and Putin can find some common grounds on how to deal with the Syrian crisis, then we can really start to move forward and even get a UN resolution.
0: President Putin has, of course, hinted he might support military action against Syria if the chemical weapons attacks were proved. That seems to be the key thing. But what exactly does that mean, Christopher?
3: Um, Who's going to prove it? Uh, if if the Americans say to Putin, well, you know, here, here's the NSA, CIA, etc., this is all our intelligence report, our analysis, etc., that's not what Putin's looking for. When Putin says if it is proved, if there is evidence, for example, he's talking about his own intelligence systems. Mm. These are the people that have actually... He he, believe, he goes with what they say. I mean, he would never believe anything the Americans gave him, just as the Americans would never give you anything that the Russians uh, uh, would give him. The important thing that it comes to the Security Council... And this is, you know, everything that Putin has said is all, always qualified. It's got to have UN backing. UN backing actually, actually means, in his mind, a resolution from the Security Council. Well, the worst he could do is oppose it, and so veto it, which the Chinese might do, or he could uh, 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 abstain in, in a vote there. And, you know, Con's right, these two guys have really got together. What they don't actually have to say very much... All they have to do is publicly not disagree, and then you can go to the next stage. The difficulty is, State Department, for example, certainly yesterday when I was talking to them, simply said, well, we're still working out what that next stage might be. Now, they've got a bit of time because Congress is giving them time and the process is giving time, but exactly what do they mean by that next stage? And that's very important. And they're certainly quite different what the, the, the Americans mean and what the Russians mean and what the Germans mean, and the Turks mean, and the Saudis mean, Qataris mean, Israelis mean, Israelis mean the Lebanese mean, uh, the Jordanians mean, and the Iraqis mean. And you can go on. Everybody's got a few, but divided roughly into two camps, America on one side, Russia on the other side, you know, proxy argument.
0: Okay, Christopher, thank you very much. Now let's move on. Amid increased military activity in the Mediterranean, the commander of British forces in Cyprus has been reassuring the British military community stationed there about the situation in Syria. There's been increased activity at the island's bases over the last week with many people working extended hours, carrying out contingency planning and preparation. Well, BFBS reporter Carla Prater joins us now from Akrotiri. Carla, you've spoken to Major General Richard Cripwell. What did he have to say? Yes, I
4: did, Claire. Major General Cripwell spoke to me the other day, keen to reassure personnel and families here about the current situation in Syria. The island's bases have been extremely busy over the last week with contingency planning. Everyone here has noted the increased activity. Personnel have been working longer hours, and at the headquarters in Episcopi, many staff were called in over the weekend responding to those developments. The commander of British forces, Cyprus, acknowledged this was a period of heightened tension, but he told me they're taking things one step at a time.
1: The government has made it clear what the role of the armed forces will be, but I am obviously aware that there will be speculation. Uh, My job is to make sure that we are prepared for whatever is asked for us, and that has been the focus of our work over the last week. My message to everyone is one of reassurance and thanks. I know people have suffered uh, some disruption in the way in which they go about their lives, and we are doing our best to make sure that the impact on individuals and their families is minimised as much as we can.
0: So what sort of activity has
4: been going on then in Cyprus? Well, as we know, before the UK voted against military action, six typhoons, two tri-star refuelling aircraft and one E3D sentry arrived at RAF Akritiri, brought in last week as a precautionary measure. It was made clear these would not be used in any action against Syria, but were simply here for defensive purposes. The activity on the runway has caught the attention of the local media quite a bit, with lots of comings and goings. Some of it has caused a bit of confusion. For example, the typhoons were scrambled to respond to an unidentified plane on Monday, which was found to be flying legally but the sight of them in the sky caused lots of local interest the commander of british forces here is making sure that despite increased movements like this services in and out of cyprus are still running including the trooper and the air bridge to afghanistan which are working normally
1: what is important to me is to help people to realize that our principal job of supporting uk operations around the world carries on as normal and that we are as just as focused on that as we are on anything else
0: So finally, Carla, what's the mood like there on the base? Have you experienced anything like this before? Well, I wasn't on Ireland
4: during Op LME to really compare it, but certainly people are very busy right now. Exercises have been cancelled, and the campus full with all the additional personnel which have been sent here over the last week. But people are still carrying on as normal or trying to. The kids went back to school this week, and there are still sports events and families' days going on, perhaps providing the light relief that everyone needs right now. People have been working round the clock with these extra taskings. Many are waiting to see what happens next week in the US to
0: see just how busy this corner of the world is going to get. OK, BFBS report to Carla Prater. Thanks for joining us. Well, Christopher, earlier this week, US General Jack Keane said Britain and the US are still working together and that US ground attack aircraft will use Cyprus. Is he right?
3: Um, let's put him in perspective. He was Vice Chief of uh, the Staff of the Chiefs of Staff in, in Washington. He made his name in Iraq. Uh, he is now officially retired, has been for a bit. Um, his briefings that he's getting at the Pentagon, he says, and I've spoken to him, he says The word is that if necessary, American aircraft can use Cyprus and that nobody is querying that and that's cleared with London. In other words, London is on board as far as it can be with the parliamentary vote that that took place. The other thing is, I mean, for example, uh, many, many, many people don't sort of seem to forget, it's very important that there is an E-Lint element in Cyprus, uh, electronic in- intelligence gathering mm-hmm. uh, in Cyprus, and that becomes very important, and the consequences and, and, and the analysis from that, or even the raw material, will be shared with the Americans, We're bound to be shared with the Americans.
0: This really raises that question about where the line is drawn. Cameron has said that we won't take part militarily, but, uh, you know, w- What's the uh, what is the line, Con? I think you're still with us. What 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 is your thoughts? Where where's the line drawn when Cameron says won't take part militarily yet we're sharing uh, intelligence?
2: Well, as Christopher's just intimated, it's uh, it's a very grey area. I mean, clearly there will not be any British combat operations, no typhoons, no cruise missiles, uh, but. The Americans and the British and our other NATO allies are used to working together, using bases, sharing resources, sharing intelligence. And I'd be very, very surprised if uh, that was broken up. Um, And I think the Americans would be very annoyed if there was a severe disruption to their normal uh, operational procedures, using British bases, etc.
0: Okay, Con, thank you. To come, Churchill's First War. Con Cochlin's new book examines the former Prime Minister's time as a British soldier in Afghanistan and the art of wargaming why military commanders are still using maps, counters, and dice to play out imaginary battles. The FBS Now, according to the United Nations, the exodus of refugees fleeing from Syria has become the worst humanitarian crisis in 20 years. In the past six months, numbers have doubled to 2 million, while inside Syria, a further 4.3 million people have been displaced. Conkotlin, these figures are astonishing, aren't they?
2: Yes, and I think this is one of the reasons why you know the G summit, uh, the G20 summit in St. Petersburg, really needs to focus on the Syrian issue and set aside political differences because it's not just the issue of. The chemical weapon attack, who was responsible, what action should be taken. The humanitarian crisis that has resulted from the Syrian conflict over the last two years is now spreading a contagion throughout the region. It's destabilizing Turkey and Jordan and Lebanon um, and with all the implications that might have for the future. So apart from the, 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 the political consequences of this, we've got, as the UN reports, coming on for 7 million people um, displaced as a result of the conflict, many of them living in refugee camps. You know, we've really got to find an international consensus on how we solve this. Um, the, 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 the bottom line here is, is the, the option that was discussed at the previous G8 meeting in Ireland uh, in June, when everybody agreed we needed to have a peace conference, get the parties to Geneva. That's rather fallen off the table because the Russians wouldn't put pressure on the Assad regime to turn up. But we really need to sort of revive this, try and get some kind of dialogue going, and try and get, hopefully, a ceasefire, and then and then address this humanitarian crisis.
0: And, Christopher, of these, the two million who have fled so far, more than half are children under the age of 17. What does that say about their
3: future? You, you cannot fix the problems in the camps with a couple of bags of flour. No. What you're think You've got to start thinking about uh, the, the children and the adults that are in there. This is something that will go on for a decade, a, a generation. The consequences of this. You could bring the war to a halt next week, but the consequences... Uh, can just spread. I've been talking to uh, the United Nations uh, um, um, High Commission for Refugees and they talk they speak about things like this four five-year-olds who cannot speak traumatized cannot speak orphans cannot speak they talk about young men already feeling so angry radicalization they talk about people saying well is this the new city what happens at the end of it where do we go and if you look at where iraq is just think what's around it you've got on one side you've got turkey the longest border is with iraq kurds going over into iraq for example you've got iran jordan israel border uh with 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 syria Uh, uh lebanon i think Think I think I said where Iraq is, I meant Syria, where Syria is. So you've got Turkey, Iran, Iraq itself, the longest border, Jordan, Israel and Lebanon. All having to bear the consequences of this in very much in human terms. Mm-hmm. And in the longer term, and if you believe the High Commission, in longer term of maybe a decade or maybe more, that is a regional problem that is going to be hard to fix And as the guy in uh, Geneva said to me uh, earlier this week, you can't do it with three bags of flour each.
0: No, okay, Christopher. Well, as you said, one of those places refugees are heading to is Iraq, a country which has huge huge problems of its own. And in the debate on Syria, Iraq is frequently being held up as an example of an intervention which went horribly wrong. Uh, Con, there's still fighting going on in Iraq, isn't there?
2: There is. um, And this is because a lot of the fault lines... uh, in Iraq, the sectarian fault lines between the Shia, the Sunnis, and the Kurds have not been addressed properly by the current government, Nouri al-Maliki. When the Americans finally pulled out, um, they urged Mr. Maliki to have a proper uh, attempt to reintegrate um, the the Sunnis back into the the, the, the Iraqi establishment um, and also Make, make a similar overtures to the Kurds that hasn 't happened as a result and, and the Iranian influence here is 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 also manifest you 've got um, an eruption of uh, sectarian violence mainly between the Sunni and the Shia, but the Kurds are not uh, exempt from this um, and you know if we 're not careful, we can see Iraq returning to the really bad days of two thousand and six when car bombs were
3: basically a daily part of life in Iraq.
0: So, Christopher, do you think Afghanistan could go the same way?
3: Afghanistan? Um, Afghanistan is a difficult one because it's a totally different complex. If you look at uh, if you look what's happening in Iraq, this year alone, 4,000 people killed, probably another 18,000 maimed. Last month, 850 people killed. Uh, July, 1,000 killed. These are big numbers. Big numbers because... The system doesn't work at the moment, and you've got the largely, as, as contest that you know, the sheer Sunni uh, complex. But if you get to Afghanistan and you hear what the army was saying uh, this week, Lieutenant General John Lorimer's uh, r- r- report, uh, that the army can hack it, uh, it'll take time, um, but all is going well. Or quite he says they're a
0: highly effective force.
3: Do you uh, agree with that? Uh, I, I might agree with. It's effective as it can be at this this moment. But I wouldn't put the police, as he does, I wouldn't put the police in there. I think the police, as a, as, a, as a local security problem, is absolutely huge. You know the problem with the policeman? The policeman goes home at night, and he has all the pressures and the influences because of that.
2: This is BFBS. Rap.
0: Now, Con Cochlin, who's been with us throughout the programme today is the Daily Telegraph's defence editor. He spent three decades covering the world's major war zones, including the conflict in Afghanistan. And his latest book, Churchill's First War, has received some rave reviews. Prime Minister David Cameron was spotted reading it on his holiday. That must have brought a smile to your face, Con.
2: It did, actually, uh, because the Prime Minister does not always agree uh, with what I write, as he mm-hmm. told me when I saw him in the summer. But, um, you know... All's fair in uh, war on politics.
0: So tell us a little bit about the book and and why you decided to write it.
2: Well, I got the idea when I was in Afghanistan at the start of the counterinsurgency operation that uh, Generals David Petraeus and Stanley McChrystal uh, put together three or four years ago. Um, and I was interviewing them in Kabul and getting you know, the background to what they aim to do. And, and uh, McChrystal said to me, well, Con, you know, what we're doing today is no different, really, to what the British did in the 19th century. And it's all in Churchill's book, The malakan Field Force, which, of course, you've read. And uh, so I said, yes, General, of course, mm-hmm. I've read it. So uh, when I got back to London, I did have a look at uh, Churchill's first book. Uh, Churchill did a lot of his first things in Afghanistan or on the Afghan border in 1897. And writing his book was one of them. Um, And, of course, the British were involved in their own counterinsurgency campaign against the tribesmen of the northwest frontier. Um, A lot of these tribes are linked to the tribes in Afghanistan. And basically, when you look at the modern campaign... And the the, the image that really strikes me is if you were to take a map of the CIA drone strikes against the tribal areas of northern Pakistan on the Afghan border, they'd correlate correlate directly to where young Winston fought in 1897 the same valleys the same villages the same tribes.
0: Yeah you point out that he was fighting the great great grandfathers of the Taliban that British forces have been facing today but historically why has Britain been so interested in controlling the borders with Afghanistan?
2: Well, going back uh, to 1897, of course, we had the British Empire, uh, and we were terrified that the Russians would come into Afghanistan and threaten the northern borders of the British Empire. So, really, from the start of the uh, 19th century, uh, successive British governments became rather obsessed with Afghanistan. Uh, we had two, of course, disastrous wars uh, in the 1830s and 1880s. And after that, the British decided the best way to deal uh, with the border territory was to establish a border the Durand line which exists to this day which went right the way through uh, the Hindu Kush separating uh, arbitrarily separating villages a bit like the 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 uh, the the uh, border that the Israelis have built through the uh, uh, through the West Bank uh, we didn't do it with concrete we did it with uh, uh, maps and pencils, but it inflamed the tribes so much so that by the late 1890s, uh, the Pathan tribes that that uh, historically control these areas were in revolt. And young Winston Churchill volunteered to go and fight with the British to uh, in punitive expeditions against the uh, tribes. And
0: was he reporting to the Daily Telegraph in Afghanistan?
2: Well, yes, when he first got up there, the uh, the brilliantly named General Bindham Blood, General Blood was a family friend and had said to Churchill at a family function, you know, that if, if there is more trouble, you can come up and fight. But when Blood was appointed to command uh, the force, the Manacan Field Force, he had a full compliment. So he said to Churchill, you can't come and fight, but why don't you come up as a newspaper correspondent? So he got a commission from the Daily Telegraph (laughs) and went up there. But, but of course, in those days, it took some time to get up to the northwest frontier. And by the time he got there, the British had taken some quite significant casualties and there was a place for a young subaltern. So uh, Churchill, as he says in his book, became a knight of pen and sword. So he wrote uh, dispatches for the Daily Telegraph and, and also fought. And he had some pretty hairy times. I mean, he came under fire as he said, uh, ten complete times, and on three occasions came very close to being killed. He did. All right, thanks, Con. We're going to have
0: to move on, but it's, a, it's an interesting read. Now, dozens of leading experts have been meeting in London to discuss the art of wargaming. Military commanders still routinely play out battles in advance to try to work out what might go wrong when it's all done for real. And, as Willinglist discovered, computers can still take a back seat to old-fashioned maps, counters and even dice.
5: Academics from the War Studies Department at King's College London aren't necessarily the people you might most associate with playing games. But despite perhaps a slight decline since the end of the Cold War, wargaming remains a key part of the strategist's toolkit, and the department has been hosting the UK's first gathering of dozens of professional wargamers. Even in an era when computer power reigns supreme elsewhere in defence, these players huddle around paper maps and tiny counters depicting formations, battleships or air effects it turns out the one such game the rapid assessment conflict Toolset, set was only commissioned last year by the ministry of defense itself jeremy smith of cranfield university is one of its creators the big advantage of the manual system is that you can very quickly uh, change it so if somebody wants to do something a bit different in the middle of the study and you want to, pre- perhaps a commander wants to do a different tactic or use uh, um, some sort of, inert, uh, I don't know, information operation, some decoying or something, which a computer simulation can't handle, you just hadn't thought of it, in this you can. You just simply generate a rule, you generate a bit of a change to the uh, the, uh, the numbers or something, and you can do it on the fly. The games being played here aren't about trying to predict the outcome of a battle, but more about trying to identify the unknowns that could come into play on the real battlefield. Conference
1: organiser and King's
5: professor Philip Sabin explains.
1: Wargaming, because of its interaction and because it's trying to model the whole of the conflict, forces you to address these issues, whereas if you're simply writing about the plan, you can ignore the parts that uh, are are awkward questions. Uh, Wargaming forces you to face those awkward questions, and particularly to face what the enemy might do and what you could do back to them.
5: Hunched over a map of Syria and surrounded by an inquisitive crowd is Tom Moat a serving British Army major and expert in conflict simulation at the Defence Academy. He explains his Matrix game, in which players put themselves in the shoes of the likes of Bashar al-Assad. The best way to um, model the way people react is to use people. So what we try and do is work out who the key actors are involved and then get people to role play it's a technique that's being used as part of a toolkit of techniques and it's being used more and more because of course some of those very high level war games uh, tend to be what we call in the trade a, a bog sat a bunch of guys sitting around a table the idea of using these matrix techniques is to provide a bit more structure in the arguments that are presented with that that group of people It was a version of that game which, until the middle of last week, was one of the devices being used by British planners to assess the next steps in the eastern Mediterranean. But not all of the games here are played for this kind of operational analysis. Defence scientists use them to evaluate how changing tactics at an individual or unit level can affect the bigger picture. And it's not just four-star generals that use chess, drafts or even risk to while away those winter evenings.
0: Will Inglis reporting. Christopher, just before we go, a quick word on Trident. What did the Prime Minister have to say yesterday?
5: Prime Minister's
3: questions. Prime Minister was asked by a Tory who said, listen, can't we let's stop messing around with these uh, Lib Dems of yours in the coalition. Why can't we simply get on with building Trident as it is, replacing it? Prime Minister said, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Wouldn't it be nice just to go and do that? In other words, there is no question in anybody's mind, and he said an elected conservative government would do this no question in anybody's mind the conservatives are determined to replace trident with a similar system but up, up, updated
0: and a bit of a, a kick in the teeth for nick clegg a bit of a dig in the ribs for him wasn't
3: it oh he doesn't mind i mean he doesn't mind see all three parties are saying we've got to replace the nuclear system uh, clegg is being pushed by his own people to come up with another system maybe a cheaper system uh, but nobody believes he'll get through
0: Okay, thanks, Christopher. Well, that's it for this week. Many thanks to The Telegraph's defence editor, Con Coughlin, and our own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter, and you can tweet us at BFBSSITREP. SITREP's back at the same time next week, but for now, from me, Claire Sadler, thanks for listening, and goodbye. news sport sport, sport. and music. music for the british forces this is